Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 37 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. One of our past speakers, Ellie Wiesel, commended the forum for offering busy people an opportunity, quote, to simply stop for an hour and think, a practice he suggested that should be imitated all over the world. Our hour-long forums are free and open to everyone, and we invite you to join us in the sanctuary at Westminster Church. Information on upcoming events can be found at westminsterforum.org or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn as well. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Carl Pope is a former executive director and chairman of the Sierra Club and a key leader in a long list of environmental and social causes, including, among others, the National Clean Air Coalition, Public Interest Economics, Zero Population Growth, the Blue-Green Alliance, and the California League of Conservation Voters. He's a senior climate advisor to former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and the principal advisor at Inside Straight Strategies, where he focuses on the links between sustainability and economic development. A graduate of Harvard, he's the author of three books, including his most recent and the focus of today's presentation, Climate of Hope, How Cities, Businesses, and Citizens Can Save the Planet. In his new book, he and co-author Michael Bloomberg offer an optimistic look at the problem of climate change. Despite setbacks in policy on a national level, they believe that market forces and public sentiment are driving the U.S. toward a climate-friendly future. At a time when fear and divisiveness threaten to quash hope, our guest speaker will offer sound and effective ideas for tackling the most complicated challenge facing our world today. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Carl Pope. Thank you very much, Tim, and thank you all for being here today. I want to open by commenting on why I'm here specifically. Minnesota's a great state, Minneapolis is a great city, but I'm here for this town hall forum, and actually I had to get up at 3.30 this morning to get here for this town hall forum. And the reason is quite simple. I think that forums like this which used to exist in more American cities than they do today, are a crucial ingredient in helping us start to confront a challenge that I'm going to argue is actually even more complicated than climate change. We need to rebuild the American narrative. We need to rebuild the American community. Uh, I had a very unexpected reaction to the tragedies in Texas and Florida and the Caribbean. As I was watching those scenes of people helping people who were geographically their neighbors, but people they didn't know at all, at, in many cases, some substantial risk to themselves. And I thought to myself, right now, for these few days, all America's watching the same news. I didn't have any problem, which I usually do, clicking onto a story if it seemed to be the timely story because it was from Fox and I couldn't tell. It was from Fox. And I suspect that a regular Fox viewer could have turned on to an MSNBC story and they wouldn't have been able to tell the difference because the story was telling itself, the media was merely covering it. They weren't creating it. And as I watched, I had this impression that 
this was somewhat conscious on the part of the media, that they were actually trying to tell a different narrative. And then in last week's New Yorker, I don't know how many of you see it, but if you don't, I'd actually urge you to go online and look at the cover of last week's New Yorker because it actually, for me, symbolized what the tragedies of those hurricanes showed us about our common humanity, which is there's a picture of a van that's stranded in the waters and then there's some people in a boat rescuing the people in the van. And just as I saw over and over again, while I watched for the, that week, you could see people reaching out to people who were very, very different than they were, without their labels. There weren't labels for that week. We had a week without labels, and that was actually a wonderful thing. And I think that forums like this give us an opportunity to make that happen more often. My book, Climate of Hope, is basically designed to lay out the case that Mike Bloomberg and I had when we started to write it, which is quite simple. The things we need to do to heal the climate are not sacrifices. Climate change does not call upon humanity to enter the kingdom of heaven. It does not call upon us to make an existential leap of compassion. It calls on us to do simple, practical things that will make us safer, regardless of the climate, that will make us healthier, regardless of the climate, and in fact, will make us richer and not in 40 or 50 years, practically tomorrow. That's not the story most of us have been told. And 15 years ago, that wasn't how scientists and economists understood the story. So our problem is not that we made this notion of sacrifice up. It was presented to us with the best knowledge we had in 2000, when Al Gore ran for president, but the world has changed, and it's changed in a way that makes the challenge of climate an opportunity, not a sacrifice. Let me try to deal first with the question of climate denial, because it always comes up. And I think it's possible at this point to deal with it very briefly. Most of the people who say they do not believe that climate change is happening, is man-made, and is a threat do not believe that, but some of them do. Some of them do. And all you need to know in responding to those is there are some things that nobody disagrees about. Nobody disagrees that the oceans are rising. Nobody disagrees that annual temperatures are getting higher. Nobody disagrees that human industrial activity is making very large changes in the chemical composition of the atmosphere. The ratio of the gases in the atmosphere is quite different now than it was 40 years ago. 40 years ago, there were essentially no HFCs in the atmosphere. Now there are a lot. And finally, what we have done to the atmosphere is already changing the acidity of the ocean and is having observable effects on marine life. That's all agreed to. What might be in dispute for some people is how much of the changes the weather is going through are due to the man-made part of that equation and how much are due to natural variation. And the honest answer to that is scientists aren't certain. They're only certain that some of it, for example, that acidification of the ocean, can be directly attributed to what people are doing. And then you get the question, what do you do about it? To which the one thing I would urge you to remember is the downside. If somebody came and offered you, well, you have a cold. Somebody came and they offered you a pill. And they said, we don't really know what this pill does. There's a lot of uncertainty. But we think there's, there's a reasonable prospect that it will cure your cold. 
and a reasonable prospect that it will give you a heart attack. <laughs> That's really what the conversation's about. The upside of not doing something about what we're doing to the climate is like curing a cold. It might be warmer. The weather in Minnesota might actually be better. <laughs> On the other hand, this could become Saudi Arabia in terms of its climate and its drought. So you weigh those two things. Now then the question is, what should we do about it? And to understand that, I want to make a point. I don't really think, Mike Bloomberg and I don't think climate can really be thought of as a single problem. That would be as if the Mayo Clinic tried to cure you by saying, well, there's this problem called fever. And when you went to the Mayo Clinic, they said, you have a fever. And we have some medicines over here that bring down your fever. But the Mayo Clinic never looked and said, what caused the fever? We are adding massive quantities of not just one gas. It's not just carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, methane, hydrofluorocarbons, black carbon particulates. And the carbon dioxide doesn't just come from fossil fuels. About half of it comes from tropical deforestation, and about a quarter of it comes from agriculture. So we are adding a bunch of different chemicals. And the reason we're overloading the atmosphere with these chemicals is because markets are failing. That's why the solutions to the climate problem, if we think of climate as a symptom, like fever, and we say, what are the individual diseases that are contributing, to, that are causing this fever? I'll give you one example. Tropical deforestation is responsible for about 12% of the current climate footprint. Almost all of that tropical deforestation is actually illegal. The global trade in tropical timber is basically a criminal racket. Most of the logs that get onto the high seas were cut illegally, often at gunpoint, and almost always by bribing local officials. The world knows what to do about criminal enterprises. We know how to stamp out the trade in illegal goods. And in the case of tropical trees, it is hard, it's true, to find things like gold and diamonds and drugs when they're smuggled. A big mahogany log? Not so hard to find. So if we would seriously say, just as we banned piracy and just as we banned the slave trade, we're going to ban the trade in illegal wood, a huge portion of the world's climate problem would go away. Second example. Uh, we have a lot of methane leaking into the atmosphere in the United States from the production of oil and gas. There's also a lot of methane leaking into the atmosphere from the production of oil and gas in Africa. Uh, we don't let people burn garbage in the open air. If you go out in your backyard in Minnesota and you try to light your garbage, you will be in trouble. Why do we let the oil and gas industry burn instead of recapturing methane, which after all is natural gas, it is a valuable product? And why do we allow massive leaks in natural gas pipelines going from that oil well to your house Leaks which are severe enough that in some cases they cause explosions and destroy neighborhoods. We do that because the oil and gas industry uses their political power to prevent being regulated. Power which you as a homeowner didn't have when you went to defend your right to burn open garbage in your backyard. And the oil and gas industry says to us, but wait, we don't need to be regulated. After all, methane is our product. We're not letting our product just like leak out. But they are, and the reason is, although you may or may not know this, the leaked methane that doesn't get to your house, you are billed for. Your gas bill 
And the way it's calculated actually takes into account that leaked methane. It's all put into the rate base and it's all charged to customers. So the gas industry actually has no incentive at all to capture that methane. And if we gave them that incentive by saying, no, 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 homeowners are not going to pay for gas they don't get, you would be amazed at how quickly the natural gas industry would figure out how to fix those leaks. It's not that technically complicated. A third example of a market failure. Uh, landlords and tenants have leases, and those leases often specify that the landlord has to take care of the windows and the tenant has to pay the utility bill. So if it turns out that it would be very economically attractive to put in windows that didn't leak so much, that actually the building would cost less after paying off. The landlord has no incentive to install the windows because the reduced utility bill goes into the pocket of the tenant. The tenant, interestingly, has quite an incentive to have less leaky windows, but he doesn't have the power, and he can't borrow to do that. So if we looked at the way we operate buildings and designed the lease structure so that the building was run for the maximum economic benefit of the landlord and the tenant together, we would stop using roughly 40% of our heating bills to heat the great Minnesota sky, which is an expensive and not terribly productive endeavor. So if you look at each one of these sources of climate pollution, what you will discover is, at its core, there is a market which is failing. Somebody is taking something they don't own, somebody isn't paying some part of their bill, or somebody isn't actually able to capture some of the value they create. And those are all things that markets are supposed to take care of. You're supposed to own what you sell. You're supposed to pay for what you take. You're supposed to be paid for what you give. But real markets are anything but the perfect cartoon that economists talk about. Real markets are messy. They're like gardens. They need weeding. And we haven't done enough weeding of the, of the gardens that are creating the climate problem. So are there some rules that we could apply that if we said, let's each of us look at our lives, the homes we live in, the institutions we belong to, the offices we work in, the churches we belong to, the local governments we vote for, and see what can we do that, that satisfies two criteria. Two criteria. One, it's good for the climate. That's the one you expect. The second is it ought to be good for you or your employer or your church or your neighborhood or the budget of your town. And if you look around, I think Mike and I found five basic principles that we thought if we applied them consistently, and that's hard work. Being consistent is hard work, and that's one of the major reasons we're in the mess we're in. It's because people are not actually terribly good at consistent hard work. First, don't subsidize bad stuff. Right now, the United States, China, Brazil, and the European Union are spending about $500 billion a year to pay farmers to over-fertilize, over-pesticide, and over-till their soil to produce a very limited group of food crops which the world does not need, so that we grow huge quantities of corn, much of it here in Minnesota, which we then turn into corn syrup because we don't really need the corn. And it would be much better for the world to produce sugarcane. Corn syrup is actually a really, really inefficient use of ag land. And if we took that $500 billion and instead of paying farmers to grow stuff we don't need and that's bad for the rest of us, we said, well, we still want to pay farmers because for political reasons, politicians do. 
and that might be too heavy a lift, let's at least pay farmers to do good things. The farmers don't care. They're getting the same $500 billion. And they'd actually be quite content to grow something differently. If we said, we'd like you to grow crops which take gaseous carbon out of the air and store it in what was once Minnesota's black prairie soil. It's not so black anymore because the carbon's all gone because we've over-fertilized it. The farmers would be very happy to do that, and that soil would store far more water and would take away many of the risks of droughts and floods. So rule one, don't subsidize bad stuff. If you're a purist, you don't want to subsidize. If you're not a purist, you say, well, let's subsidize good stuff. But at least don't subsidize bad stuff. Rule number two, do make people pay for what they take. Otherwise, you don't have a market. You have shoplifting. And when a company wants to go out and dump something into the atmosphere, make them pay for the privilege. Don't give it to them for free. And all of a sudden, it will turn out that an awful lot of these practices that people defend as being good for the economy are actually quite bad for the economy. They're good for the person who does them because they're not paying for what they take. Third, we need to recognize that we all do live on this planet together. And we are dependent on some big natural ecosystems that need to be taken care of and invested in. So sometime in the next several months, when we finally get the full picture of what happened in the Caribbean with this bait of hurricanes, uh, if you looked at an aerial photograph of those islands, you would find a dramatic difference between places where there are still mangroves on the shoreline and places where there are not. Where there are mangroves, you're going to have damaged but intact communities behind them. Where the mangroves were cut down, there's going to be virtually nothing. The problem with mangroves is, that, I mean, they're unbelievably wonderful creatures. For $10, you can restore an acre of mangroves. That acre of mangrove will store 2,500 tons tons of carbon a year, and it will protect three miles back of it in the case of a hurricane. But mangroves have one problem. Anybody who lives behind a mangrove gets free protection. So nobody has an incentive to pay for it. So we need to invest in public goods. The public goods in Minnesota are probably wetlands. The public goods in the Caribbean are mangroves. The public goods in New York City were the sand dunes on the barrier islands. Almost all communities have natural communities that protected them and around which these communities were originally built. And we have stopped investing in those as a nation. And we need to start reinvesting. So with those thoughts about things we could do, I want to close by telling you one more piece of good news. Uh, in 2015, President Obama went to Paris, and he made a pledge. He pledged that by 2025, the United States would have reduced its greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels. Frankly, it was not a terribly ambitious pledge. We could have, we should have, and in my view, we likely will do more. But it was a substantial pledge by comparison with anything the United States had promised before. The President of the United States has gone to great lengths to proclaim to the world that the United States will not keep its word. That we're not going to do that. That, in fact, we're going to go backwards. The President of the United States is not going to get what he wants. The United States, so far, is more than halfway there to meeting that pledge. And you all participated in making that possible here in Minnesota. And you probably didn't know you were doing it. You certainly didn't feel impoverished by it. 
because wholesale electricity prices went down from all the wind turbines you built in Minnesota. And that's Minnesota's biggest contribution to that progress. And as long as Americans do what makes sense for them, as long as we buy the cheapest electrons we can get, they will be wind and solar, not coal. As long as once electric cars become genuinely more attractive to drive, which right now they already are in California, they're not yet in Minnesota. You guys are not going to be early adapters of electric cars because you've got those winners. <laughs> if we let people have choices about how to get around cities with transit, as you've done with light rail here in Minneapolis, as long as we keep making choices like that, all the data suggests that the United States will not only meet, we will exceed the pledge we made to the world in Paris, and Donald Trump can whistle in the wind, but he cannot stop American progress. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carl Pope. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum broadcast from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Carl Pope, an environmental activist and co-author of the new book, Climate of Hope, How Cities, Businesses, and Citizens Can Save the Planet. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience, I'd like to thank our broadcast partner, the statewide network of Minnesota Public Radio News, heard in the Twin Cities at 91.1 FM, and the media sponsor of today's forum, the online news source, MinPost. We invite the radio audience to join us at Westminster Church for our next forum on Tuesday, October 24th at noon, when Ari Melber, chief legal correspondent for MSNBC, will explore politics, governing, and the law. Our events are free and open to all, and further information can be found at westminsterforum.org. And now, Mr. Pope, if you will return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from the audience. First one has to do with the changes you've seen in the environmental movement. You've been an, an activist involved for decades now, and when you began your environment, environmental activism, the, the movement was quite different, and now it seems to have coalesced around climate change. What has happened along the way to, to change the focus of, the, of those advocating for ecolo ecological sustainability? Well, the environmental movement that I came into in 1970 was just beginning to focus on issues like clean air and clean water. Those were new issues in 1970. And we went through a period of time in which the country did a pretty good job and a bipartisan job of cleaning up the 20th century industrial mess. Lake Erie catching on fire, I mean, Lake Erie dying, the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. Uh, phenomenon like that, the Santa Barbara oils. But we did, we did a pretty good job with the obvious, gross, and ugly stuff. We, at that time, were not aware of the fact that we were beginning to overload some planetary systems. At that point, we didn't even realize that CFCs were destroying the ozone layer. So then, after we cleaned up the obvious mess, we had a rude awakening when we discovered there was a hidden mess, which was the ways in which we were disrupting global ecosystems. And it has taken a long time to figure out how to deal with the hidden mess. The Montreal Protocol did heal the ozone layer, but climate change proved a much more difficult issue. And I honestly think that uh, a new kind of environmental something, I'm not going to call it a movement, because I'm honestly not sure what it is, was born this summer. When Donald Trump pulled out of Paris, for the first time since Earth Day 1970, environmental issues became a cable news event. 
The amount of attention and debate that was paid to Trump's decision, which was sort of a nothing burger of a decision because he actually can't pull out. Uh, it takes four years and he hopefully will have reconsidered by then. Uh, was absolutely unprecedented. And, and I now think we're at a moment when these issues have become something that aren't the property of a movement anymore. Mayors, governors, business executives, 7,000 religious con congregations, hundreds of university presidents have all said, wait a minute, I own a piece of this. None of us owns it all. That was the thrust of the book and of my comments. This doesn't have a single solution. A carbon tax is not going to save the world. A carbon tax would be a good way to pay for government, but it's not going to save the world. We're going to have to do a bunch of stuff. We're going to plant a bunch of mangroves. Uh, we're going to have to protect a bunch of wetlands here in Minnesota. But I think something new is being born, and as I said, I'm reluctant to call it a movement. And I think the reason it's happening is very, very exciting because three groups of people have stepped up forcefully to this table who were kind of in the background before. African Americans, Hispanics, actually four groups, immigrants more broadly, and young people. The voices that are now shaping where we're going, the the institutions aren't yet led by those people for the most part, but the voices that are actually being listened to are new voices, and I think that's incredibly exciting. Were you receiving here lots of questions about mining in northern Minnesota? You may have heard we're engaged in a conversation <laughs> about a heavy metals mine that's proposed for areas adjacent to the Boundary Waters. Proponents of the mine always talk about jobs, proponents of a cleaner environment, always talking about the environment. How do we stop this false choice between jobs and the environment? Well, one of the real challenges is that when somebody has been used to getting something for free, it is hard to make them start paying for it. That is why newspapers are having such a hard time getting us all to pay for the articles that we're used to getting for free on the internet. Mining companies have been getting for free the right to dump their wastes all kinds of places. And if you look at the economics, I have not looked at the economics of these particular sulfide mines. I have looked at the economics of the world's biggest gold mine which happens to be in Papua New Guinea. And if you look at the number of tons of toxic waste that it takes to extract an ounce of gold from that mine, and you calculate whether it is possible to store that many tons of waste for the value of the gold, and the answer is no, it is not. Mining gold at that mine is a losing economic activity. It costs more to do it once you take all the costs in than you can make, which means gold actually is underpriced because we're actually subsidizing the mining of gold by allowing miners to dump things. I am reasonably certain that when we look at sulfide mines, in the northern part of Minnesota, it will turn out that that is an economic loser. It cannot meet the market test. It will only survive if it is subsidized. And if the miners are willing to say, from day one, you can shut us down the moment we dump into the environment, their bankers will run for the hills. Let the bankers pull the plug, and let's find activities that are economic winners for people in those communities. Another local Minnesota question. What crops would you recommend Minnesota farmers grow other than corn? Uh, well, you grow a fair, number, fair amount of sugar beets, I believe. 
Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a farmer, so I'm not going to tell you what crops to grow. What I'm going to suggest is that we ought, to, we ought to take the money that we're currently giving farmers to grow corn and say, we're going to give you this money to restore your soil. You get the same number of dollars per acre, but you're going to use it to restore your soil. The price of corn may go down. The farmer may make less on the corn. I'm not against corn. I'm against subsidizing the pesticides and the herbicides and the fertilizer that are used to produce the corn instead of saying, let's take care of the soil. A question even more local to many of us. Any movement to curb the use of lawn fertilizers? Is it a huge problem? Well, I don't know about whether it's a huge problem in Minneapolis. Uh, it is a huge problem in some places. It is a huge problem in Florida. I mean, there are actually 30-mile stretches of beach in Florida you can't go on safely in the summer because over-fertilization. Again, I am reasonably confident that there is a way for people in Minnesota to have green lawns and not pollute your lakes. The only problem is the companies that make the lawn fertilizer would have to make different kinds of fertilizer and they would have to sell it in certain seasons. You just have to change the way you do it. A lot of this is good stewardship. I mean, if you think about how careful we are with the way we clean our kitchens, how we make sure that we know what we're doing, you say, well, if we took the same kind of care of our gardens and made sure we knew what we were doing, and if the companies were required to offer us products that were actually safe, I think we could solve both problems. I don't think green lawns and blue lakes are necessarily in conflict. Lots of questions coming to us about the world population. The global population is, is expected to top out at around 12 billion people. Do you believe we will be able to curb climate change with that kind of population growth? I don't believe that's what we're going to actually face. And I want to make a broader comment about there is essentially one thing that we need to do for several reasons. If we are concerned about ethnic violence in the world, which almost all of us are, in various forms and from various experiences. If we are concerned about how well young children, children before the age of six, get equipped to grow up and be educated, and if we are concerned about population, there is a silver bullet. The silver bullet is called Educate Girls. It's all it takes. It's all it takes. And it would be much better to do two things for population, educate girls and provide good health care to everybody. But in societies where girls are educated and health care is not adequately provided, birth rates still come down. They don't come down in such healthy ways. There are too many abortions, which is not the way we ought to go. So I would say we should do two things. Make sure we educate girls. Make sure everybody has access to basic primary health care. If we do that, we won't get anywhere close to 12 billion people. And look, we have, there, are, there are parts of the world where, I mean, if you really say, where is this population growth happening? It's not happening in the United States, particularly. It's not happening in India, it's not happening in China, it's not happening in Brazil. It's happening in places like Somalia and Yemen. It's happening in utterly failed states where women have absolutely no access to the public space or to education and where health care is not available. That's why the birth rates are so high. So we should fix the problem and we should fix it. We, we should fix it with something other than drones. Several questions coming in from students. Students in the audience who are practically minded, what are a few ways we can personally do something to shift climate change? What can I do tomorrow or today to improve my community's environment? Well, 
one of the things that we all do is we all buy stuff. Walk into the trendiest store you shop in, find the product that you're pretty suspicious might not be very good for the environment, go up to the manager and ask him to tell you where it came from, how it was made, is it sustainable, and tell him you're gonna tell your friends not to shop there <laughs> until he cleans up his act. You will get his attention or her attention. Okay. <laughs> A question about meat grown in laboratories. Will that have a large impact on climate change in the future? I'm skeptical, but I could be wrong. Uh, first of all, let's deal a little bit with meat, because it also ties into the population question. Uh, it would be better if we all ate much less meat but it would be most better if we all stopped eating uh, corn-fed beef. I mean, corn-fed beef is really 80% of the problem associated, an ecological problem. There are other issues with meat eating, I, I appreciate. But 80% of the ecological impact comes from feeding corn to cows, which are not biologically designed to digest corn. Once we do that, I wonder if 20 years from now we'll be eating so much meat that we'll need laboratory-grown beef or whatever it might be. I don't think you'd call that beef. So I, I suspect these, just like I don't think we're going to, we're not going to, we are going to recapture carbon from the atmosphere and we are going to store it underground. We are not going to do it with great big machines. We're going to do with these like amazing, amazing machines that we already have, where you take a little teeny thing this big and you throw it out and you come back and it's this big. It's called a seed. And then it's called a seed. He's, called saying. A seed. he's talking about a seed. He's preaching now, but away from the pulpit. That's right. And I'm not qualified, practicing theology without a license. Um, <laughs> plants are really incredible. We've had billions of years to learn how to sequester carbon. That's what they do. They take gaseous carbon dioxide out of the air, they turn it into sugar, and then they put the carbon back into the ground. That is actually how plants work. And they're really good at it. We're never going to catch up. Bluntly. A pig knows how to make pork with remarkable skill. <laughs> I don't think we're going to catch up with the pig either. Another question from a student. Uh, we referred to uh, in, your inter in the introduction that gl uh, climate change is the, the most serious challenge facing the world today. Why do you think it is that important, that serious? Uh, I would just suggest that I think that because I look at what I just saw on television in the Caribbean and Florida and Texas. The fact is, human civilization only developed because for the last 10,000 years, the climate went asleep. It didn't change very much. For most of geologic history, Climate was like Hurricane Irma times 10 all the time. We got this 10,000 year period of relative peace and that enabled us to learn to live in the Arctic and also to live in the Kalahari, but the Arctic wasn't gonna be the Kalahari in five years. The Inuit didn't have to figure out how to live in something that was completely wild and Climate change at the pace we are experiencing it is going to disrupt all of the settled patterns that we've developed over thousands of years as human communities. It's the biggest community disruptor that I know. The world incidentally is gonna be just fine. 
Life is going to be just fine. Life is absolutely relentless. We're not going to get rid of life, whatever we do. But human civilization, that's a little more fragile, and we're particularly fragile to bad weather. Why is there, then, still disagreement in the scientific community on the issue of climate change? What's driving that disagreement? Well, the scientific community, first of all, it's a very complicated phenomenon. It's, we can't predict the weather, and we probably never will be able to predict the weather a week in advance with precision. So that makes it very difficult to say, if I change the climate in manner X, the outcome will be changed climate Y. There actually isn't any disagreement in the scientific community that the climate will change. There is no disagreement on that. There's disagreement on exactly how it will change. There's disagreement on how fast it will change. There's disagreement on how much it was going to change anyway. But about the fact that we are changing the climate, there actually is no scientific disagreement. There are a few politicians who say it. If you sit down with them in private, I have done so. They shrug their shoulders and say, that's what I have to say. They don't actually believe it. So when speaking with climate change deniers, what are some of your best arguments that, that action to support the uh, halting of climate change actually benefits us economically? Uh, well, for example, most climate change deniers tend to be conservatives, and most conservatives don't like subsidies. So I'd say, wait a minute, why don't we stop subsidizing fossil fuels? We spend $175 billion a year subsidizing fossil fuels. Could we start out by saying, let's put that money back into taxpayers' pockets? That's something that a fair number of conservatives can get behind. Uh, the other thing you can say is, by the way, this is the fastest growing industry in the United States. The single fastest growing job category in the United States is wind turbine. No, it's wind turbine repairmen. That is the single fastest growing job. Uh, and if you look at where renewable energy has taken hold most deeply, let me tell you a list of really radical pro-Obama states where renewables have taken off. Oklahoma, <laughs> North Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, home of the Koch brothers, Texas, Iowa, well, that's a little bit purple, and Minnesota's a little purple. But the only two states with meaningful quantities of wind energy that are even purple are Minnesota and Iowa. All of the other wind states are profoundly red, profoundly conservative. Their governors will all swear there is no such thing as a climate problem and they are all building wind turbines as fast as they possibly can because it makes money. So how much progress do you think uh, you and others uh, who, who support the environmental movement the way you do, or how much progress are you making in reaching across the aisle to, to those who disagree? Are you creating new allies? I think we're creating lots of new allies in the business community. That's probably the place where I see the biggest shifts. Uh, I was, you know, the, the most surprising, there are about 125, depending on how you define major, about 125 major American corporations that have committed to get 100% of their energy from renewable electricity. Some of them are ones you might expect because they're either very techy or very California like Apple and Microsoft. The one you might not expect is Anheuser-Busch. Budweiser will be entirely renewably powered. And I asked somebody from Anheuser-Busch, okay, I mean, I'm glad you did it. Why? Do you really think people drinking beer are thinking about the electricity the beer was made with? And he said, no, but the people we employ 
and the people we try to hire do. We did that for our employees because our employees want to know that they're with a responsible employer. So that's where I think we're really making, I think the last group of people to, be, to get common sense on this will be federal politicians. <laughs> they will be last. When this issue becomes genuinely bipartisan in Congress, it's all over. We have time for just one more question, Mr. Pope. We'd like to know uh, if you're hopeful, if you're hopeful about America's future, about the world's future, facing this, what seems to be to many an intractable problem. Well, I'm by temperament an optimist. The alternative just seems terribly depressing, to be honest. <laughs> I'm particularly hopeful about climate. I spent my whole life as an environmentalist thinking I was working on one of the world's more intractable problems. I now think I've stumbled into one of the world's easiest solutions. My whole life I would go to decision makers, people I was talking to, city hall, state legislatures, governors, congress, that's what I did. And I'd say, look, I want you to do something. It's going to be expensive for the next 10 years. After that, you're going to be happy you did it. But for the next 10 years, yeah, it's going to cost some money. That was a hard sell. People don't like to wait 10 years, especially politicians, for the payoff. Now I can go into people and say, by the way, you have about six months to sign that contract or somebody's going to take the business away from you. I find that a much easier sell. Thank you, Carl Pope.